The Ford F-150 truck drives smart design forward. The standard 12-inch productivity screen helps you get what you need done too. And the available pro-access tailgate improves access to bed and cargo and utilization of the bed, including when towing a trailer. Together with a wider bumper step, it's easier to access the bed and load in tight spaces. And available Pro Power Onboard serves as a mobile power source, providing up to 7.2 kilowatts of power to charge a bed full of electric dirt bikes or run an entire job site worth of tools. I'm still driving my 2016 F-150 truck and 90,000 miles in. As long as I keep it clean, it honestly still looks brand new. I've taken it down snow-covered forest service roads, taken it out camping, put a ton of miles on it on the freeway, had five adults in the cabin for long trips, and it's been great everywhere. Super dependable. I still love the way it looks, nice and rugged design, but with a super comfortable interior. And I'm still very happy with the quality sound system and heated seats. And since I bought my 2016 F-150 truck, the list of standard amenities that make a truck feel like a luxury vehicle have only grown. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Find your local Ford dealer at Ford.com. Pro access tailgate available starting spring 2024. See owner's manual for important operating instructions. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Pancho Villa had what a lot of historians refer to as the single greatest Mexican mustache of all time. Many Mexican men have had mustaches, but uh, more often than not, they've been somewhat wispy, uh, composed of what appears to be 20 to 30 hairs total, thin, borderline feminine, a Danny Trejo before the hair and wardrobe department gets a hold of it mustache, not Villa. Pancho Villa had a Sam Elliott, Tom Selleck, Ron Swanson, Borat type of mustache. Pancho Villa feared no man, but his mustache scared the shit out of him. He knew if his mustache ever turned against him, his precious revolution would be lost. But seriously, Pancho Villa was referred to by many as the Robin Hood of Mexico. Some referred to him as the George Washington of Mexico. He was a legend in his own lifetime, long before the ridiculous Chuck Norris legends. You know, guns don't kill people. Chuck Norris kills people. There were Pancho Villa over-the-top tales of preposterous machismo. You know, stuff like, there's no one else like Pancho Villa. If there was, Pancho would find him and blow his brains out. Pancho Villa was one of the world's first movie stars, and he wasn't an actor. In a way, he was the world's first reality TV star because at one point he allowed actual battles he fought in to be filmed. Pancho Villa was a revolutionary fighter who despised the wealthy landowners who had subjugated the impoverished farming class of Mexico, comprised of mostly indigenous people since long before he was born. He stole from the rich and he gave to the poor. He also stole from the rich to fuel the various wars he fought in, all of which had the same goal, to topple Mexico's existing power structure and redistribute the wealth the upper 1% possessed amongst the poor. And we're going to learn all about him and a lot about Mexico along the way in another power to the people, killing in the name of addition of Time Suck. You're listening to Time Suck. Happy Monday, Time Suckers. Hope you had a great 4th July. One Time Sucker for sure had a good weekend. Time Sucker, Angelia uh, Deseppi? Deseppi. God, the name. Ah, you got a very Italian name. You got a very uh, straight-off-the-boat name. 
uh, and, and and Angel Angel Angelia. It's like Angel. It's like An- uh, Angelina, but without an N. And it's uh, D Giuseppe. I think is how you say your last name. Could of course it couldn't have been like Jane Smith who won this thing. Uh, well, well uh, Angela Angelia, whatever your name is, you won the Weber Grill courtesy of the Amerigas giveaway. Congrats! Heat that meat. Thanks to all of you who participated. Uh, for the rest of you, work can wait. I know you're probably dreading being back after a holiday week. We had a little time off. But time Suck is here to cushion the blow. Time for some more brain candy. Had a blast working on today's suck. I'm Dan Cummins, a.k.a. the Mother Sucker, the Master Sucker, the Prophet of Nimrod, the Mushmouth King, sex slave of Lucifina, and he who walks with Bojangles. And you are one smooth, Michael McDonald-loving, summertime sailing, yacht-rocking listener of Time Suck. Welcome to the cult of the curious. Hail Nimrod. And I believe I uh, mispronounced Michael McDonald. I believe it's Michael motherfucking McDonald is is correct. Big thanks to The Rap, man, that popular L.A.-based entertainment website. Uh, we made their 10 perfect summer podcast list. So we made a, made a top 10 list. I'm very excited about that, man. They said, uh, quote, when we want to go down a dark, dark rabbit hole, we turn to time suck. Comedian Dan Cummins addresses subjects from the Spanish Inquisition to serial murders with the sick sense of humor they demand. He's a master of always making fun of the right people and never the wrong ones, and he's great at balancing the frantic and droll. Ah, thank you, the rap. Got a big appreciation boner right now. Uh, I also appreciate uh, uh, all the new listeners you sent our way. And uh, and thank you, new listeners and, uh, and old listeners, for continuing to pour in the reviews on iTunes and elsewhere, spreading that sweet suck, infecting others with curiosity and irreverence. Ratings and reviews help us so, so much. Uh, the ride keeps getting more fun as this, uh, as this thing grows. And, uh, and for all of you, uh, I know there's been some chatter in the uh, private Facebook uh, uh, group about the app and about little uh, bugs and stuff. We are working on it. The, 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 the problem is uh, my fault right now where the beta test has been going. I just haven't had time with uh, kind of like my own kind of holiday stuff to, to join in as, as fast as I would like. But I am joining in in, in a few days uh, to, really, to really get that stuff going, to get the new version out. So a lot of the bugs are fixed. So we're working on all kinds of stuff, always working on something. Thanks for continuing to send in gifts and artwork to the Suck Dungeon each week. So much talent in the Suck world. Truly amazing shit from pinup artwork to books to posters, paintings to wood carvings, cornhole boards. Uh, all of that stuff's been sent to P.O. Box 3891, Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, 83816. Uh, also, I do have the correct link now up in the episode description for the new Pandora station, Behind the Bit, featuring Chad Daniels and I discussing, discussing our favorite bits, how we thought of them, what we like about one another's work, uh, etc., uh, the station was having technical difficulties the other day. Hopefully those have been remedied. Uh, huge thanks to everyone who ordered a Chikatilo Wrestling Academy kit. Sorry if uh, if it took a few days longer than normal to send those out. Eric got slammed. Merchmaster Eric got slammed with orders. So happy with this product, man. Over half of the 500 limited edition summer camp kits with that limp water bottle, that punk rock wristband, camp t-shirt, drawstring, camp backpack, already gone. There's only... Uh, only a handful of large and small t-shirt size kits left. So much wrestling. What's this big deal with so much wrestling? Why is people loving so much wrestling? Uh, thanks for not letting us lose thousands of dollars on a bunch of weird-ass fucking backpacks that are very hard to explain to non-time suckers. Oh, and uh, and when you get it, open the water bottle before you try to expand it. Turns out that's a trick. I almost ruined my water bottle just trying to fucking force it apart like a caveman. Flat Earth Tour coming to Orlando this week. Be at the Improv July 12th through the 14th. The Orlando Improv podcast on the 15th with Tom and Dan from Mediocre Time. Queen of the Suck, Lindsay. Come with me as well. Lindsay's also going to be heading with me to SoCal the next week. Comedy Store in La Jolla. 
July 20 through 22nd. Another great club. Dayton, Ohio, uh, July 27th through 28th. Not sure if Lindsay's heading uh, along for that one. So I think she'll be at home with the kitties and the Penny Pooper and Gigi. Uh, in August, I'll be at Side Splitters in Tampa, the 2nd through the 5th. Palm Beach Improv, 10th through the 12th. Zanies in Chicago, 15th through the 18th. That's that one uh, downtown, near downtown by Second City. Uh, and then at Denver Comedy Works, 23rd to the 25th, with another live podcast on the 26th. And a lot of more, a lot more tour dates coming up. Portland, Denver, Tacoma, Tampa, your mom's bedroom, Palm Beach, your dad's bedroom, Hollywood and Huntington Beach. So much more at DanCummins.tv. Now let's go Bandito. Let's get revolutionary. Let's suck the shit out of a man who honestly probably got sucked a fair amount in his own lifetime. Pancho Villa. To me, uh, this episode really represents the best of Time Suck. I knew literally nothing about Pancho Villa before last week. He was just a name to me. I just uh, I had no idea what his name represented. I heard it, but two weeks ago, you know, I couldn't even tell you with certainty what country he was from. You know, Mexico? Maybe. Maybe somewhere in Central or South America. Maybe uh, maybe Spain. Maybe SoCal. Why, why was he famous? I don't know. You know, was he bandit? President? Bank robber? Gunslinger? You know, juggler? Puppeteer? Big game hunter? Who knew? Well, I know now. You're about to know now. And uh, he was incredible. He was truly an inspiring story, man. Made me feel the way I felt when I researched Chesty Puller. Going through Pancho Villa's tale. Brave, tough, take no prisoners, no excuses. Let's get shit done. You're going to have to kill me to stop me. Force of fucking nature. Same, same vein as like Teddy motherfucking Roosevelt, Chief Crazy Horse. I love those tales, man. I love those tales when you're like, you know, you're tired or if you're having like a woe is me moment or whatever, these are the stories to listen to. It's like, you know what? Stop feeling fucking sorry for yourself. Pancho Villa wouldn't feel sorry for himself. He'd get out there and fight for what he wanted. Truly amazing to me what some people have done with their, with their time on earth, man. Reinvigorates me to hear their tales. You know, if you're not getting what you want out of life, are you, are you just going to lay down and accept some bullshit? Or are you going to go out and fight for what you believe in? Pancho fought. He fought a lot. So much fighting. Uh, to understand what Pancho Villa was fighting for... We must first understand the history of Mexican independence. In the recent Aztec Empire suck, we learned how Spanish conquistadors invented piñatas. Yes, Cortez is the father of the piñata. Montezuma showed him how human ritual sacrifice works, and he was like, that's cool. But what if, instead of pulling out still beating hearts and cutting heads off and flaying skin and all that jazz, what if you just hid candy in a paper mache donkey and let kids hit it with sticks? Think about it. Of course that's not true. Uh, we learned how Spanish conquistadors conquered modern-day Mexico when Cortes and his allies crushed the Aztecs. After he crushed the Aztecs in 1521 CE, he quickly crushed and subjugated the other regional empires and put the yoke of colonial Spain upon them. And then Spain rules over Mexico for the next three centuries. In 1808, the Spanish Empire is greatly weakened by Napoleon's war against Spain, occupation of the Iberian Peninsula. He topples the monarchy, establishes his brother Joseph, as his brief leader. Remember? Remember Joseph Bonaparte? Huge bonus points to you if you can recall which episode of Time Suck he made a cameo in. A weird cameo. Think hard. I'll give you a big hint. It's a suck set in Jersey. Yes, he showed up in the Jersey Devil Suck. Do you remember that? Joseph, after being booted out of Spain by British forces, took off to the United States in 1817, ended up in New Jersey for a time, where he claimed to have an encounter with the Jersey Devil. Right? That's also where he made a butt baby with a piney. Well, look at here now. I got some pick. Taste this pick. Ever did lick out of my woman's beard. 
Well, looky here now. With a full belly, I made a butt baby with a woman on mine. And it's heir to the kingdom of France. Got no teeth and it shits its pants. Under the moonlight, it will dance. The Jersey Devil's really from France. Ring, ding, 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 ding. Man, I miss singing that piney song. I know some of you hate it. <laughs> Old callback. Just went down for some of you new time suckers. Anyway, I, was, I know that was weird. With Spain fighting and losing a war with France in 1808. I, I nailed that on the first take, by the way. I do want to just point that out. I'm not saying I'm not saying that was a Grammy-worthy performance of of song. I'm not saying I'm the I'm the the songstress, the the, the songbird of my generation. However, one take. All right, you just want to throw it out there. Uh, Spain fights, loses the war with France in 1808. Their provincial government in Mexico loses stability. Various American-born Spaniards, people born in Spanish families who who lived in Mexico for centuries at this point, you know. And uh, who, who had lost more and more cultural association with Spain. They start to fight for independence from Spain. They want to just do it themselves now. One of these people is a Catholic priest named Father Manuel Hidalgo. A priest in the small, small village of Dolores. He issued uh, his now famous call for Mexican independence to cry for Dolores. On uh, September 16th, 1810. <laughs> I, I just realized I didn't look up the pronunciation for it. It could be a Dolores, but I think it's Dolores. Uh, it's this. It's the date celebrated as Mexico's Independence Day, and again, that's September sixteenth, eighteen ten. September sixteenth, not May fifth. Gringos, Cinco de Mayo commemorates the Mexican Army's victory over the French Empire on May fifth, eighteen sixty two, after the French had invaded Mexico in eighteen sixty one, after Mexico had failed ba- uh, failed to pay back some loans that France uh, that they wanted. Uh, they were coming to collect. A little more complicated than that, but that's that's all we need to know today. Cinco de Mayo is actually a, a much bigger holiday in the U.S. than it is in Mexico. It's basically like if Mexico celebrated Lincoln's birthday as uh, the major celebration of all things American. February 13th, by the way, is Abraham Lincoln's birthday. It's a public holiday in a few states like Illinois. Uh, don't feel bad. I didn't know either. Anyway, Hidalgo rallied a bunch of peasants to take arms against Mexico's foreign rulers, and they got their asses kicked, and he got himself killed. After a few early small victories. And luckily, that's not the end of his tale. While he died, his message lived, and he inspired the local population to continue to fight foreign rule. And by August 1821, Spain officially conceded that Mexico was, in fact, its own country. And then Mexico had a variety of presidents and uh, and territory for a time that that included Texas, as we learned in the Texas Rangers suck, and included California, Utah, the American Southwest, Nevada, as we learned in in the Donner Party suck, Mexico undergoes a civil war known as the Reform War. At almost the same time the U.S. has its civil war between 1857 and 1860, wars waged between members of the Liberal Party who had taken power in 1855 and members of the Conservative Party resisting the legitimacy of the new Liberal government and its radical restructuring of Mexican laws. So it turns out it's not just modern American liberals and conservatives who hate each other and fight a lot. Uh, then there's that French occupation thing I mentioned a few minutes ago in the 1860s. We know where Cinco de Mayo comes from. And then after numerous other revolts and uprisings, uh, a man named Porf- uh, Porfirio Diaz takes control of Mexico. Except for a uh, one four-year stretch from 1880 to 1884, Diaz will rule uh, unopposed essentially as a dictator until 1911. He's a president only in name. So, so, uh, so much more political turmoil in the past few hundred years of Mexican history than there has been in the United States. Uh, during the period of Diaz's rule, which will take us into the life of Pancho Villa, Mexico undergoes tremendous commercial and economic development based largely on Diaz's uh, encouragement of foreign investment in the country, part of which is based around oil. Get some, uh, get some of that oil money flowing out of the uh, country. By 1910, 
most of the largest businesses in Mexico are owned by foreign nationals, mostly American or British. You know, a lot of them making some of that oil money. Uh, the modernizing reforms made by the Diaz government turned Mexico City into a bustling metropolis. Railroads and mills are peacefully multiplying throughout the country. Mines, plantations, telegraph lines, railroads are being built. It's all bringing a lot of, a lot of wealth to the nation. It comes, however, at the cost of continued oppression for many. For Mexico's poor, it's just more of the same now. Diaz's close circle of friends benefit greatly most of Mexico's vast wealth remains in the hands of a few families, just like it had you know, the time before Diaz, just like it had in the time of the Spanish occupation, and the poor continue to be poor. Across the nation, thousands of peasants work under slavery-type conditions on enormous and essentially feudal estates, where through indentured servitude, debt would be inherited by children from their parents. The hacienda of just one family, the Terrazas, covered more than two and a half million acres. That's over three times the size of the entire state of Rhode Island, all owned by one family. Uh, 90% of the country's population lived in poverty. More than three-quarters of the population were pure Indian, uh, looked down upon and exploited by the wealthy ruling class, who, according to various historians, believed them to be an ignorant and lazy mass, fit to be oppressed, subjugated, and put to work until they died of exhaustion. So that's how little they thought of them. This is the Mexico Pancho Villa is born into. An extreme version of the haves and the have-nots, and he is born as a have-not. Seemingly born to a fate of serving the wealthy, which feels all too relevant to me as uh, economic inequality grows here in the U.S. Did you know, by the way, that the U.S. ranks around the 30th percentile in income inequality globally? Which means that 70% of countries have a more equal income distribution than the U.S. Not that they have uh, plenty of money to, to, to spread around, but what they do have is spread around uh, a little more equally. The top 1% of households received approximately 20% of pre-tax income in 2013 versus approximately 10% from 1950 to 1980. You understand? 1950 to 1980, it's staying at 10%. And then 23 years, it jumps to, to 20% and it just keeps going higher. The gap continues to grow. Does that, does that sound right? Uh, it doesn't sound good to me. Uh, you know. Drive, drive through the working class section of your city, and, and you will see for yourself, if you don't live there, uh, that people are struggling. So now that we understand a little bit about Mexico's history from Cortez to Villa, which is basically continual subjugation of the poor indigenous population, first by Spanish-born rulers, then by Spanish-controlled rulers, then by local Mexican-born rulers who break from Spain only to exploit themselves, we can dive into Pancho's Rebellion. And fight for the poor that led to uh, U.S. President Woodrow Wilson referring to him as the Mexican Robin Hood before the U.S. turned on Pancho. We're going to learn about all that in today's Time Suck Timeline. Strap on those boots, soldier. We're marching down a Time Suck Timeline. June 5th, 1878. Jose Dorteo Arango Arambula is born into extreme poverty. The actual city of his birth is disputed, but the most exception loca- accepted location is uh, in Rancho de la Coyodada, an insignificant village of no more than six houses inside the hacienda of Santa Isabel de Berros in the state of Durango. So the man who would later attain fame under the moniker Pancho Villa, that is catchier than all the shit I said earlier, uh, let's fight for Pancho Villa, is, uh, I think that's more powerful than, let's fight for Jose Dorotoyo Arango Rambula. Yeah, rolls off the tongue a little better. Uh, born into one of those giant farms into indentured servitude. Uh, hatred of the rich soon follows. His father, Augustine uh, Arango, was a sharecropper, a.k.a. 19th century Mexican equivalent of a medieval serf. A sharecropper is 
someone who farms land they, they don't own, and then they give a portion of their crops each year to the owner to sell. And uh, at this time in Mexico, the, the, the portion will be high enough to keep the farmer from ever having enough money to actually buy the land they farm. So essentially, they're indentured servants. His mother, uh, Michaela Arambia, uh, raised Villa and his four younger siblings from an early age. Villa had to help earn money for the family. Family couldn't afford to send him to school, you know, but rather he, uh, he got up at 3 o'clock in the morning because he had to walk 10 miles to get to work. And then the overseer required them to be working at 5 a.m. Man. I, my kids, I, they can't, I can't even imagine my kids trying to pull off that shit. Uh, there's no way. <laughs> there's no way. Uh, you know, I, uh, I tell Kyler to, to mow the whole, the whole yard, and he looks at me like I've just asked him to, you know, go off and fight in a foreign war for three years. He says, what? what? But, it's, but it's 80 degrees outside. Um, <laughs> Pancho was able to uh, learn how to read and write through his local church. Mostly he worked. He worked on the large ranch, planting corn, running errands for the workers. He described as a cheerful boy who liked to play cards, constantly got into fights. So, you know, cheerful to some, violent to others, which would describe him as an adult as well. Uh, 1893, Via's father dies, leaving him as head of the household at either 14 or 15 years old. And uh, again, oh, my God, if I died in two years and uh, I love my my kids to death. But if Kyler had to run the house in two years, oh, fucking bankruptcy. Here we come. The house is going under. Uh, he's only he's only able to hold on to this role for about a year because someone does something uh, the following year that leaves him decidedly uncheerful. In 1894, local property owner Augustine Lopez Negrete uh, wanted to exercise what was loosely known as the right of lord on Via's beautiful young teenage sister. Basically, if you're a landowner or you're like a, a landowning friend of, of a landowner and, and you want to you want to fuck some some uh, peasant's daughter or their sister, you know. Uh, you got to, you got to do it. You know, you got to do it, or they got to uh, get kicked off their land and become homeless beggars. You know, because uh, peasants were seen as their property. You got to do what you wanted with your property. So this uh, owner ends up raping her, and young Via finds out, shoots him dead, and immediately becomes a fugitive with the price on his head. He steals a horse, flees for the mountains in northern Mexico. Uh, he joins a group of bandits, some banditos, and uh, officially took the name Pancho Villa. Can't go by his regular name now. Well, quickly. Villa becomes leader of his own gang of fellow outlaws and miscreants, and he spends the next six years living in the mountains, acting like Robin Hood. He and his gang grew to about 40, 50 men. They'd steal from large local ranches, big haciendas. Uh, they'd steal cattle, other animals, but never from the poor local farmers directly. You know, Instead, he'd, he'd share his loot with them. He became notorious enough for the Mexican government to put a reward of 10,000 gold pesos on his head. And I have, I have no idea what that translates to because I could not for the life of me find out how much were pesos worth in the year 1900 compared to the American dollar 1900 so that I could then translate it to today's dollar worth now? Uh, Time Sucker editor Jesse Dobner could also only find conversion rates going back to 1947. 10K in 1910 is worth almost 276000 at current inflation rates. So let's, you know, for argument's sake, it's a lot of fucking money. A lot of money. Despite a high reward of 10,000 pesos, which may have translated into, you know, a fucking billion dollars or $10. I don't, no one turned him in. Uh, in fact, the local people would warn Via when law enforcement was looking for him. They loved him. He fought for them. He took care of them. He was our champion. You know, he was really good at hiding as well. In addition to becoming a famous revolutionary, he, he could have been a world-class hide-and-seek player who, who had memorized, you know, the intricate mountain trails where he lived. He became a very skilled horse rider. He eventually became the most wanted man in northern Mexico, and still they could not catch him. And then in 1910, Pancho evolves from bandit to revolutionary when he backs the play of one Francisco Madero, 
Francisco Madero was a well, uh, member of a wealthy family who started writing against Porfirio uh, Diaz's government. Madero was uh, wealthy but socially conscious. At least he seemed to be. He's also a small man. He's a tiny man. He's four foot ten inches uh, tall with a uh, what I would consider a stereotypical vegetarian's physique. Uh, like I'm not a, an incredibly strong man, but I feel like I could – if I was going to enter a contest where I had to throw another grown man for as, as far as I could, like who gets who can throw a grown man the farthest? And I spotted him in the crowd. He would be my teammate. I would, I, I would confidently feel like I could throw him, I, I don't know, 8, 10, 12 feet. Anyway, he was large in spirit. In the summer of 1910, when the now 80-year-old uh, Mexican six-term president slash dictator – Porfirio uh, Diaz promises free elections. Madero decides he's going to run against him. And then when Madero starts gaining some traction in the election, Diaz is like, you know what? Ah, I was kind of kidding about the whole, you know, anyone can win election thing. That's, that's, not, how we, that's not how we do this. I mean, I, I, yeah, I, I say you can run, but once you get too many votes, you got to fucking get out of the jail. You got to get to jail. So, um, so, he gets, so he arrests him. He arrests him. Uh, Diaz wins the election for himself. Seven time in a row. Oh, he's a seven time champion. Uh, he wasn't quite ready to retire yet. I've heard power is addictive, and he'd had a lot of it for a long time. Those types generally don't just kind of walk off into the sunset if they can help it. So then in October 1910, the imprisoned now Madero realizes that the only chance for change in Mexico is by a force of arms. He, he realizes that, uh, you know, the concept of a free election is a joke. So he, uh, he escapes from prison, sneaks to the United States, and from there launches a plan for the revolution, which calls for people to take up arms against Diaz, uh, Diaz's dictatorship on November 20th, 1910. And again, if you're new to this doc and you're like, how did you just sneak out of prison? Every time we do uh, a time suck set in like the 19th century or early 20th century, people just walked out of fucking prison left and right. Like, I don't want to go back in time for a variety of reasons. It sounds horrible. But if I have been sentenced to prison, for sure want to go back in time. Because apparently uh, with just any tiny bit of ingenuity, you could just walk right on out of prison. You could get out very easily, it seems like. People did it a lot. People did. If, if you got sentenced to life in prison in like 1880 or 1910, and like when you were 20, and then you died at 80 in prison, you were a dumb son of a bitch. Uh, there was you. You were just not good at figuring out how to get out of places like at all. Okay, so he decides. All right, we're going to take up arms against Diaz. November 20th, 1910. Sometime in October, Pancho Villa meets one of uh, Madero's supporters, uh, supporters, fellow, fellow revolutionary Abraham Gonzalez who convinces the young outlaw to join their cause, join their fight. And the first social revolution of the 20th century is born. Killing in the name of... A little fucking De La Roca for you there. November 20th, 1910. Madero arrives at the border, plans to meet up with the 400 men raised by his uncle, Catarino, to launch an attack on Ciudad Porvidero uh, Diaz, um, modern-day uh, Piedras Negras, uh, in the state of... Uh, uh, gosh, dang it. Uh, I wrote down the pronunciation, but it's still a little tricky for me. Ka-Awila. Ka-Awila. Kick out the revolution. All right, let's get ready against the machine. And this is hilarious to me. So he's like, all right, he's, you know, he escapes. He makes it to the United States. He's like, all right, man, let's, let's fucking let's go. Let's get this revolution going. And his uncle's like, yeah, yeah, no, totally. Yeah, we're going to do it. And he's, and he's like, you get the guys for me. And he's like, okay, all right, man, I'll see you at the border. Yeah, then we're going to go fucking march Mexico City and we're going to take shit back. His uncle shows up with 10 dudes. <laughs> he's like, killing in the, ah, what the fuck? Dude. Dude, we're supposed to kick off a revolution today. You barely have enough people for a party. You know, so just wah, wah, wah. So it's a bit of a buzzkill. Uh, revolution is on pause. We're putting it on hold. We're going to need more than 10 dudes to storm Mexico City. 
So <laughs> instead of fighting with his 10 dudes, Madero and his brother Raul, they traveled to New Orleans, uh, head over to Louisiana to arrange some more support for the sa- from the safety of the U.S. You know, they start making some powerful connections to D.C. They're attempting to break Diaz's U.S. connections, you know, and gain support of Washington to overthrow his government. And while he's not able to get official support from the U.S., he is able to get President Taft to essentially kind of look the other way so he can smuggle some arms down to the states of Mexico to, you know, get, into, get them into the hands of his growing army of rebels in Mexico. He's got more than 10 dudes now. You know, one of these rebels is Pancho Villa. And uh, in February 1911, Madero enters Mexico again. And now he's got 130 men, which doesn't seem like a lot to me to kick off a revolution with. But it is far more than 10. And uh, he leads them in a successful attack on Casa Grandes in uh, Chihuahua. Uh, he spends the next several months as the head of the Mexican Revolution. And by April, the revolution had spread to now 18 states. So he's making progress. One of the state's regional leaders, a man who would lead troops for Madera and be instrumental in his upcoming victory, a uh, name we'll hear a lot in this uh, tale today, is uh, Emiliano Zapata. And uh, on April 7th, Madero, Villa, Pascual Orozco, uh, along with 2,500 uh, 2, untrained men, attack Ciudad Juarez, which is being defended by 700 federal soldiers commanded by General Juan Navarro. Madero orders a ceasefire, but Villa and, Oroz- and Orozco, Orozca, uh, continue attacking the city. By May 8th, the besieged federal troops occupy a few buildings in the city center. They've run out of water. Uh, with fighting restricted to close combat, the federal army's superior artillery our, our, artillery uh, was of little use. Uh, two days later, Navarro surrenders. And on May 25th, 1911, Madero and his rebels have won. Diaz resigns from office and, goes into, and he goes into exile in France. So, you know, he started off with 130 dudes and uh, he built up enough momentum to win the war. Right? Uh, this... Uh, uh, Diaz would die in Paris a few years later. Uh, Madero's, you know, he's in charge now. Uh, briefly, briefly. Though the war had felt, you know, too easily won, little or no bloodshed. But then Madero, he fucks up, and uh, he sends the armed men who had supported him home. He sends the rebels home. He's like, yeah, we're good, guys. I'm sure the people, uh, Diaz, you know, helped keep rich, will be totally cool with me kicking them out of the country. Uh, we should be super stable now. You know, the wealthy elite of Mexico who've been exploiting everyone and just, you know, continuing to be wealthy, they're going to be cool with the massive, massive social reforms that I feel like making. Uh, you know, what, what, what are they going to do? What are they going to fight to stay rich? Come on, God, that never happens. Uh, Madero employs some uh, horrific critical thinking skills here. Uh, if only he had been able to subscribe to the Great Courses Plus and fuel that little meat sack pilot who lives in his skull. Time Suck is brought to you today by the Great Courses Plus. What a perfect fit for this show. You know that Time Suck is all about doing a deep dive into topics that fascinate us, exploring everything from serial killers, we're going there on Friday actually, uh, to history's biggest mysteries. Well, so is The Great Courses Plus. It's like it's built for Time Suck listeners. Uh, The Great Courses Plus gives you unlimited access to learn from award-winning experts about virtually anything that interests you. Thousands of lectures to enjoy on a variety of topics like human behavior, the universe, uh, play guitar, tai chi. Anyone having back problems, by the way? Try Tai Chi. I'm not joking. Seriously, try it. I thought it was weird when someone recommended it to me, but but t- years ago, Tai Chi saved me. I'm not joking from having a second back surgery. Uh, way more gentle way of loosening your muscles up than yoga can be for people with structural issues like compressed or herniated discs. Because I had a, a disc pushing into a sciatic nerve, had surgery on it when I was 28. I think I re-herniated it. Uh, and then it was pushing back into that nerve. And I was I was pretty depressed when I was about 35 about having like a, a possible fusion, which is, you know, no fun. And uh, and, that, and then someone recommended Tai Chi, this guy who had had several back surgeries, showed me all those like surgery scars. It was crazy. He said he had had like four surgeries. And he was like, dude, if I, if I would have looked into Tai Chi early on, I might not have had any of these. 
I, I thought it was a, a load of, you know, you know, crystally nonsense, but I started doing it. I got this DVD from this uh, David Dorian Ross Tai Chi guy, and after about three weeks, my back felt better than it had in years. And uh, and David Dorian Ross now has his courses on the Great Courses Plus, and you can watch or listen anytime uh, with the Great Courses Plus app. Uh, I recommend starting your the first thing you watch. Start with a Deceptive Mind, a, a scientific guide to critical thinking skills taught by Doctor Stephen Novella. It, it is the cure for idiots of the internet. Uh, and right now, you can get a special limited time offer. Go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash timesuck to get a free month of unlimited access to all their lectures. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash timesuck. Get that free month. You know, you can do it today. And uh, link in the episode description and on the app. Okay, so Madero, he screws up. He doesn't, he doesn't uh, em- em- employ any critical thinking. He keeps Diaz's old army around him, keeps his old ministers in power. You know, keeps uh, various other structures left in place by Diaz. It's like, dude, that is not how you fucking do a revolution. Once you get in, you clean house. You know, uh, wasn't that phrase out with the old and with the new around yet? You know, I'm not saying you have to behead all of the old house, but maybe a couple. You know, this is proven a, a good revolutionary tactic. Uh, Villa wasn't happy with Madeira's lack of power moves. He knew he was making a mistake. He told him, you, sir, have destroyed the revolution. It's simple. This, bu- I love he says dandies here. This bunch of dandies has made a fool of you. And this will eventually cost us our necks, yours included. Yeah, Pancho was deeply saddened by the man who he believed could lead Mexico into a new era of equality being charmed and manipulated by the powers that be. And this is exactly what was happening. On November 6, 1911, Francisco Madero becomes president of Mexico and his reign does not last long. Some of his supporters, his supposed supporters, quickly turn on him. Zapata, who had been instrumental in defeating Diaz, took to the field again when it became clear that Madero had no real interest in land reform now that he was in power which is one of the big things they had fought for. The old guard had bought the new president, and it was just more of the same. A small group of rich landowners exploiting the much larger working class, and Zapata was pissed. This is exactly what they were supposed to be fighting against. In November of 1911, Zapata calls for Madero's removal, demands land reform, names another Mexican revolutionary leader who had fought for the cause as well, a man named Pascual Orozco, we talked about, chief of the revolution. Now, Orozco is pissed because Madero didn't reward him at all for his role in the overthrow of Diaz. Madero fucked up. You know, he didn't take care of the people who brought him to the dance. Not only did he tell his army to go lay down their arms, he didn't reward them for the role in the revolution. So they just picked those arms right back up, just killing in the name of their back. They got fucking Zach De La Roca out in the front. He's riding a horse. They're fighting again. Uh, so, so Villa, I guess still thinking Madero would eventually follow through on his promises. Uh, Villa, Villa did truly believe in Madero. He initially defends him. But then, uh, but then he falls under suspicion of one of the old guard of military leaders that Madero had employed. You know, this, this tyrant of a general named Victoriano Huerta. And Huerta accuses Villa of stealing a horse, orders him to be executed in June of 1912. And it almost happens. Like, really close. Really close. Villa is brought out in front of the firing squad. He's standing there. They're prepared to shoot. And then a telegram from President Madero arrives at the very last second, staying his execution. Can you imagine being that close to fired upon by a firing squad? There's a picture you can look on. If you do a Google image search of Villa standing there just waiting to be fired upon. And I got to say, he doesn't he doesn't look nervous. No tears. No tears. uh, No, no hands in the please don't kill me sign. Uh, And he got a reprieve at the very last moment. Man, talk about your day turning around. Uh, He did not get completely let off the hook, though. He got uh, sent to to jail, puts him in prison uh, for the first time in his life. And it doesn't stay long because, again, this is... uh, this is the days when it's easy to get out of prison. On December 24th, 1912, he escapes from prison. He just gets out, and he boards a train for the U.S. Uh, man, 
again, now cops can track you down through, through the DNA in your family tree. Back then, you know, you just walk on out. January 2nd, 1913, Via crosses the border in Nogales, Arizona. Many suspect that Madero is the one who actually helps him escape. Man, Nogales, that's the first place in Mexico I ever set foot. Uh, bought a bullwhip there with some allowance money when I was about 10. My dad's girlfriend at the time, Julie, taught me how to haggle. Haggled for that bullwhip. Loved that whip. Learned to crack it. Felt like Indiana Jones. If I had been able to talk uh, one of my friends and let me give them a good old crack with that whip, I can only imagine how satisfying it would have felt. Man, I wanted the neighbor kid, Paul. He's the one I fuck. I remember wanting just to fucking whip that dude. Right? Him and I used to fight all the time. God, I wanted to whip the shit out of him. Anyway, uh, now I know that I walked where Via walked. So that's pretty cool. Uh, February 1913, military revolt breaks out in Mexico City. Uh, Madero had depended upon General Huerta, the old general who wanted to hang Via to command the government's troops to watch his back. But Huerta conspires with the exiled former dictator Diaz to betray Madero. Of course he did. Uh, Madero was arrested on some trumped-up bullshit, and while being transferred to prison, he was conveniently assassinated, gunned down by the escort. So, you know, the old guard got him, just like Villa predicted. And also, like Villa predicted, the old guard came after the rest of the revolutionaries. On February 18, 1913, Huerta becomes president of Mexico. He immediately dissolves the legislature and establishes a military dictatorship. And Villa is ecstatic. He's over the moon. This is, this is exactly what he wanted for Mexico. He'd grown up under a dictatorship posing as a presidency— and what he really wanted was a dictatorship that just unabashedly squashed motherfuckers who got in their way. He was like, finally, they get it. No. No, he knew he had to take back Mexico. He had to take up arms, gather all the men he could to fight Huerta, the man who tried to kill him earlier, the man who tried to put him in that fire, the man who did put him in that firing squad. Uh, he wasn't alone, except for big investors and landowners who were relieved by the return to order. Uh, the same idea was now echoing in the hearts of all Mexicans, not in the upper 1% that had been there for a while. Throw the jackal out of the presidential chair. They had a new guy they needed to depose, you know, new tyrant. So the revolution, back on. Game back on. Back to killing the name of. March 1913, Via crosses the border back into Mexico so he can shit, uh, get shit back on like Donkey Kong. Uh, no, he had nothing. He wasn't going back there to shit. Uh, that same month, Huerta ex- executes Abraham Gonzalez, current governor of uh, Chihuahua, and a man Via considered a friend and mentor. So Via now takes, uh, takes Chihuahua. Uh, he takes the fight to Chihuahua, back, takes it back from Huerta. He and eight men take to the Sierra Madre Mountains to round up followers to join the fight. Um, this is crazy. Uh, like, like, you know, earlier they, they, they took, uh, started off with 130 dudes. When Villa, like, gets back into Mexico to really get back into, into fighting, <laughs> he initially has just eight dudes. Uh, him and eight other dudes head up to the mountains to start the revolution with one bag of flour. This is the legend. Some salt, two bags of coffee, a few guns. Small amount of ammunition. Uh, to gain more weapons, they just attack Huerta's army and take them. Villa told his men that the army had everything they needed. They just had to take it from them. How badass is that? We just go with a handful of dudes. Uh, what's our problem? Uh, besides not having any men? Uh, we don't have weapons. Okay. All right. Uh, does, uh, does the much larger enemy we're trying to fight have weapons? Lots of them. All right. Well, let's just go take them. Does, ha, why didn't anybody else think of that? Just go fucking take them and then use those weapons to kill them. It's easy peasy. Like, he really did shit like this. Villa teams up with uh, Venestiano Carranza and his old ally Emiliano Zapata to form uh, Division del Norte, Division of the North. He goes full John Stark on these motherfuckers. On December 1913, Villa becomes the governor of Chihuahua. Started off with eight dudes, now becomes the governor. This is the same Mexican state he was born in, the one he grew up sharecropping in. Now he's governor in less than a year after taking off into the mountains with a couple of dudes and some coffee. He's only governor for two months, but in that time, he takes a bunch of property from the rich, confiscates a ton of their gold, 
uh, takes from the banks, redistributes wealth among the poor, establishes heavy taxes uh, to the upper class. On Christmas Day in 1913, he brings together thousands of Chihuahuas poor, gives them 15 pesos each. How about that shit? He's a real man of the people, man, a real Robin Hood. He also sent his soldiers to patrol the streets, uh, warning them he would shoot anyone who got drunk or committed burglary. He didn't, he didn't uh, while he was fighting, dude did not drink. He felt it was important to stay sober to keep the revolution going. Don't, go, don't get drunk and go crazy and fuck everything up. He also opened uh, several schools, created laws for the protection of orphans and widows, lowered the price of milk and bread. Man, after all that stuff, he resigns from governorship to continue to fight his war, you know, to uh, go back to leading some troops and take back more parts of Mexico. And, and now I'm officially man-crushing on this badass son of a bitch. Uh, he didn't always, uh, you know, just suggest formations and then wait to see how it turned out when he was uh, leading in battle. He, he actively fought alongside his men in many of the battles. He was out there on horseback. Firing his fucking pistols, bandoliers across his chest in the midst of the action. He was a great shot. He was an excellent rider. Then in January 1914, Villa does something so unbelievably innovative and badass, it doesn't seem real to me. He signs a deal with a Hollywood production company. This is not one of my lies. He signs a deal with a Hollywood production company, the Mutual Film Company, uh, to have them actually film like real battles, to film several of his actual battles for American newsreels and moviegoers. What the hell? Under the terms of the agreement, uh, the rebels undertook to fight the revolution for the benefit of movie cameras in exchange for a large advance payable in gold. He got uh, $25,000 U.S. dollars worth of gold up front to help finance his revolution, buy some more guns, and he gets a big chunk of any back-end profits for the picture. And uh, and sadly, while a lot of the footage has been lost, uh, these crazy bastards actually filmed live battles. Right, They're out there with cameras filming people in the midst of fighting. People being shot and killed, you know, cameramen out there, I guess, just hoping not to get shot themselves. And then the mutual film company uh, mixes in some scenes of these real battles with some scenes of actors telling Poncho's story to form a narrative. And it ends up being uh, an hour and 45 minute film that was uh, finished on May 9th, 1914, called The Life of General Villa. The film featured scenes of battle, scenes of execution by firing squads, scenes of peasants who would knock the teeth out of corpses with rocks in the wake of firing squads in order to harvest their gold fillings. Uh, those scenes were apparently so graphic they caused projectionists to vomit in screening rooms back in Los Angeles. And sadly, you can only watch a few minutes of it today. Lost to history. Damn it. The only reason we even have a few clips today is because Edmundo and Felix Padilla, father and son team who distributed films to Spanish-speaking American audiences in the 1920s and 1930s, they'd put together multiple films about Villa with Edmundo uh, releasing The Revenge of Pancho Villa in 1936, a film that used segments of numerous other silent films including the life of General Villa. And, you know, uh, the clips that he used are the only clips we have left. Maybe, maybe, the, maybe the full film will turn up in a janitor's closet one of these days, like that, uh, like that early 20th century Joan of Arc silent film did. Man, if someone can find a copy uh, of that film, thought to be lost, right? Man, you are, you are hitting a lottery. That's going to be worth millions. Uh, however, making a huge profit off of Villa's uh, revolution does sound like a surefire way to be haunted by an army of angry Mexican ghosts. Uh, in March 1914, Villa and his men, they start marching from Mexico City. They got that Hollywood money now. They got their arms. They're going to find that rat bastard Huerta. Uh, Villa's northern division had grown to more than 50,000 men. All of them paid, most of them on horseback. They had come a long way from eight dudes, two bags of coffee. His army included moving hospitals uh, with the capacity to serve more than 1,000 injured, as well as volunteer doctors, Mexicans, and foreigners alike. It was a brutal force for the time, the largest revolutionary army in the history of the Americas up until that point. 
Villa's forces had become so impressive, the U.S. president, Woodrow Wilson, who had a vested interest and who won the war, you know, as the U.S. was receiving cheap goods from Mexico and had a lot of investments in Mexico, chose to back Villa, saw him as the as the winning horse, you know. Uh, this made it easier for Villa to get guns and ammunition now from the United States. In exchange for Wilson's support, Villa respected American property in Mexico, avoided confiscating anything from Americans living there. He also influenced many Mexican farmers, unable to withstand the pressure to sell their land to the Americans, whom uh, Villa would now leave alone, let them sell it, because Villa could uh, sell livestock and other products to the U.S., man. It was just, uh, again, that much easier to uh, earn money, earn more money, to buy more weapons, ammunition, supplies. So he, uh, you know, he builds an army capable of, you know, openly battling the forces of the federal government. They don't have to fight guerrilla style anymore. Villa and his division, Del Norte, uh, captured the city of Torreon, uh, Zacatecas, uh, strategic locations in northern Mexico with important mineral and communication resources in 1914. They're kicking ass. They're bringing modern artillery weapons into the ranks. They're an impressive fighting force, so impressive that Wilson had sent uh, military leaders down there to study him, study uh, Villa's movements, study his techniques. And on June 11, 1914, the 89th and 90th Battalions, led by Generals Juan G. Zoboranes and Alberto Rodriguez Sarillo, uh, occupied the state of Zac- uh, Zacatecas. Uh, fellow revolutionary, Ventisuano, uh, v- Venus, Venusiano, uh, Carranza, the leader of the rebellion, a man who had become the first president of a New Mexican republic when things were all said and done, asked Villa to send a portion of his division of the north to aid, uh, insisting that they were not led, though, by Villa himself. He was too important to the cause to continue to fight directly, and Villa was basically like, uh, yeah, fuck that. He, he decides to bring all his uh, division of the North Army to uh, Zacatecas, uh, an act of defiance that would create a growing gap of discord between Villa and Carranza. It was a funny thing about Villa, man. He just uh, he, he did not like politicians uh, generally, even when they were on his team. Uh, on June 22nd, Villa arrives, opens a can of whoop-ass in Zacatecas. Uh, when the revolutionary cease fire at 6 p.m., 6,000 juaristas, uh, 1,500 villistas, and 2,000 civilians had fallen. So, you know, 6,000 of the, of the enemy army, 1,500 of his own men fall. Uh, the villistas, the men and women who fought for Pancho Villa, gained a considerable booty of uh, 12,000 Mausers, machine guns, uh, 19 cannons, countless number of explosives, 5,000 federal prisoners. This is the battle that is said to have broken Huerta's spine, uh, figuratively. He was, he was able to still walk, but his shoulders are slumped now, his eyes were watery, and his outlook was gloomy. Women, by the way, did fight for Villa. They were called uh, uh, sold, soldaderas or adelitas, and some of them fought in the infantry. Uh, some of them fought in the uh, cavalry, and some even led troops. So, uh, hail Lucifina. One of the most famous female combatants was Petra Herrera, or Petra Ruiz. At the beginning, she dressed as a man, took the given name of Pedro, joined the ranks of Villa's army. She kept her identity a secret until she had been acknowledged as a great soldier. Once she built her reputation, she let her hair grow, plated it into braids, resumed her female identity. According to one of Villa's troops, Herrera was uh, the person who should have been credited for the siege of the town of Torreon. However, Villa was not willing to have a female take credit as an important role in a battle, as having an important role in a battle, and therefore she was uh, never given what she deserved. And as a result of her lack of acknowledgement, she left Villa's troops, formed her own troop of all female soldiers, became an ally of Carranza and his army, and became an, uh, another legend of the revolution. And Pancho, he let, his, he let his big male eagle get in the way, lost some troops. Oh, well, I guess no, no one's perfect. July 15, 1914, Huerta resigns the presidency slash dictatorship, flees to Spain. Right, in August of 1914, Carranza enters Mexico City, becomes the first president of the new Mexican Republic. Villa has now fought for and helped install two separate leaderships in Mexico in just a few years. Uh, and again, 
this leadership does not does not last long. On October of 1914, representatives of uh, what had become known as, as the Big Four among revolutionary leaders, Villa, Zapata, Carranza, Obregón, as well as several smaller independent rebel leaders, meet at the convention of uh, Agua, Aguas Calientes, uh, hoping to agree on a course of action that would bring peace to the nation. Unfortunately, the peace efforts fail. The Big Four goes to war. Villa against Carranza, Zapata against anyone who enters his fiefdom in Morelos. The wild card is Obregón. He decides to stick with Carranza. On December 6th, Villa and Zapata's troops enter Mexico City. Villa's army consists of 50,000 troops still. Man, uh, Zapata has 15,000, and then Carranza leaves the city entirely to avoid dealing with them for now. So then, uh, then Pancho Villa famously sits in Mexico's presidential chair in early December 1914, just for a few seconds, just to have his picture taken with his friend Emiliano Zapata. Uh, he, he never was a president of Mexico, although he could have been. He could have been right there. could have declared himself president that day if he wanted but he just didn't like politicians, had no interest in becoming one. How cool is that, you know? Could have taken the, could have taken the, the, the crown, but preferred fighting for the poor directly. Felt his place was on the battlefield, not behind a desk. It was the first time someone from the indigenous working class had ever taken over Mexico. But Villa just didn't want the job. While in Mexico City, he, uh, he did take some orphan children, send them to, send them, uh, to Chihuahua, gave them shelter, food, and education. He also visited the tomb of Francisco Madero, the first guy he got in power to pay his respects. And uh, legend has it that while visiting his grave, he exclaimed, Here in this place, I swear I will fight till the end for those ideals. My sword has belonged, belongs, and will belong to the people. Words fail me. And then he burst into tears. So, he, man, he was uh, seriously dedicated to the cause. And then in 1915, the fighting continues. Uh, 1915 would actually be the bloodiest year of the revolution. Uh, via success in battle had made him reckless. He, he felt untouchable at this point. Uh, he'd had so much success, it just went to his head. His right-hand man, Felipe Angeles, was a brilliant military strategist. And then in 1915, he starts to just kind of not listen to him. He's Pancho motherfucking Villa. No one tells Pancho what to do other than Pancho. And even then, sometimes he doesn't listen. If Pancho wants to hear another man's thoughts, he'll take his boot out of that man's ass. Let him talk for a second. Uh, only God can advise Pancho. And even then, not while he's making love. God will wait till Pancho finishes with his woman. He's Pancho Villa. No, but success has really gone to his head. He ceases to be an effective military commander. Villa and Zapata felt that they uh, could take the remnants of the old federal army, now being led by Alvaro Obregón. Uh, Felipe tries to, to make him see how dangerous it is to overextend his supply line. Points out that uh, better than fight right now, why don't we wait for the enemy in the north where the division can receive assistance if necessary, you know, from, uh, from above, from the states. Villa, though, is like, nah. He's like, this guy can't take me. He's like, let's just go now. He calls him the sweet-smelling Obregón. He thinks he will flee as soon as he uh, sees uh, Pancho Villa in the fight. You know, he's Pancho fucking Villa. Uh, he won't even have to fire a shot. He thinks he'll just walk out in the field of battle, whip his dick out, and they'll just lay their weapons down in exchange for him promising not to beat them to death with his Mexican trousers or python. Meanwhile, Zapata is uh, holed up in Morelos in a state of semi-truce with Carranza. He rarely leaves the city. He's not, uh, he's not as gung-ho to fight as, as Pancho is. And then uh, Pancho decides, whatever, let's do it myself. So on April 4th, 1915... Obregón moves his force from uh, Guaratero to a small town of Celaya, which is built on a flat plain alongside a river. Obregón dug in, placing his machine guns and building trenches, daring Villa to attack him. Uh, Felipe Angeles begs Pancho to leave him alone. Meet him in battle somewhere else, you know, where he can't just use his mighty machine guns to, to bear down on Villa's forces. But Villa's like, nah, man, we're good. Uh, he doesn't want, his, doesn't want his men to think he's scared. He prepares for a frontal assault, which is which is not smart when you have guys on horses, and you're uh, you know I'm I'm no I'm no military leader, but if you have a bunch of dudes on horses, and the dude you're fighting has a bunch of dudes in trenches, four to five 
fortified trenches with machine guns pointed towards the horses, maybe rethink your assault. Uh, but Villa's like, nah, machine guns be damned. Uh, Pancho Villa's men were the most elite cavalry in the world at this point. They were very skilled on horseback. They were trained to ride and shoot with perfection. His, his cavalry had never been defeated. But again, eventually, you know, if horse meets, if horse meets enough gun, ho- horse loses. Obregon's ready. He suspects that Villa would send in wave after wave of veteran cavalry, uh, cavalrymen. Cavalrymen, Jesus Christ, and he was right. He positioned his barbed wire, trenches, and machine guns in anticipation of the horses. And at dawn on April 6, 1915, Obregon makes the first move. He sends a large force of 15,000 men to occupy the strategic El Guare Ranch. Uh, this is initially seems like a mistake. Villa had already set up troops there. Obregon's men are met with blistering rifle fire. He's forced to send out small diversionary squads to attack other parts of Villa's forces to distract them. He manages to pull his men back, but not before sustaining serious losses. However, uh, when he orders his men to fall back behind the machine guns, Villa pursues, thinking he can crush him now, sends his cavalry in, and the horses get you know caught up in the barbed wire. They're cut to pieces by machine guns and riflemen. Rather than retreat, Villa just keeps sending in wave after wave after wave of cavalry. And each time, they are repulsed. Each time, they are caught in barbed wire. They're mowed down. You know, Their sheer numbers and skill almost break his line on several occasions, Obregon's, but they don't. And Villa and his men are forced to retreat for the night. On dawn, on April 7th, they're back at it. Sends in the cavalry again. He sends no less than 30 cavalry charges that day, and each time they're beaten back. With each charge, it becomes more difficult for the horsemen. The ground is now, you know, literally slippery with blood, littered with the dead bodies of men and horses. Late in the day, the Villistas begin running low on ammunition, and Obregon, sensing this, uh, sends his own cavalry back now against Villa. Villa didn't keep enough forces in reserve, and his army is routed. The mighty division of the north retreats to Arapato, uh, or uh, Arapuato, uh, to lick its wounds. Villa had lost some 2,000 men in two days, most of them his best cavalrymen. Uh, and then both men called for replacement troops. Villa attempted to goad Obregon into the plan where he, he knew his di- northern division would be able to defeat them. Excuse me, onto the plain where he knew they'd be able to defeat him. Uh, and Obregon is not fooled by taunting and remains fortified. April 13, 1915, Villa convinces himself that the previous route had been due to a lack of ammunition and bad luck, and he attacks again. He had not learned from his mistakes. He sent in just uh, more waves of cavalry. Uh, he attempted to soften up Obregon's line with artillery, but most of the shells missed the soldiers in the trenches and uh, just, you know, kind of scattered around, fell nearby, not hurting anybody. Once again, Obregon's machine guns and riflemen cut the cavalry to pieces. Uh, you know, Villa's elite cavalry, you know, they did test Obregon's defenses, but they're driven back every single time. It has now become the definition of insanity. He just keeps trying the same thing over and over and over, expecting different results, and he doesn't get them. Uh, the fighting continues until the 14th, and then on that evening, after heavy rain, uh, Villa pulls his forces back. The 15th, April 15th, Obregon counterattacks again. He had once again kept a lot of his cavalry in reserve, and he turns them loose as dawn breaks. The division of the north, low on ammunition, exhausted after, you know, days, con- continual straight days of fighting. Uh, they crumble. His men scatter, leave behind weapons, ammunition, and supplies. Villa's losses are devastating. At the second battle of Salaya, he, he lost 3,000 more men, 1,000 more horses, 5,000 rifles, 32 cannons. In addition, some 6,000 of his men have been taken prisoner. The number of his men who were wounded, uh, who were wounded excuse me, is not known, but it must have been considerable. Uh, Obregon had scored a resounding victory against Villa. Uh, his reputation grew mightily as Villa had rarely lost any battle and never had lost a battle of such magnitude. Uh, however, Obregon sullies his victory with a, with a very kind of underhanded act here. Amongst the prisoners that he had taken were uh, several of Villa's officers who had cast aside their uniforms and were undistinguishable, indistinguishable from common soldiers. And Obregon informs the prisoners that there would be amnesty for officers. 
if they would just simply declare themselves and uh, they would be set free. So 120 do admit they were Via's officers, and he just uh, sends all of them to the firing squad and executes all of them. So the Battle of Salaya is uh, one of the most important in the story of Pancho Villa because it's, uh, it's, it's the start of his decline. Until this loss, the Mexican people thought of him as unstoppable, right? He was a master tactician. You know, n- no, one, no one could touch this guy. And then this view is shattered with this, with this loss at Salaya. Uh, the Battle of Salaya is the last time Villa would control an army of that uh, size. Why didn't he just adjust his tactics? Why didn't he try something else? A lot of historians uh, think he was sleepy. By a lot of historians, I mean only me. He probably would have won the battle, I think. You know, his men would have been able to have a decent, you know, chance if he would have had a decent night's sleep on a Lisa mattress. Yes, time suck. Brought to you by Lisa. Lisa leveraged 30 plus years of experience, hundreds of hours of testing to develop the perfect mattress for all body shapes and sleeping styles. Pancho Villa would have killed twice as many men, vetted twice as many ladies if he'd only had access to a Lisa mattress. Lisa, like Pancho Villa, revolutionary. Revolutionary mattress design, like Poncho, they give to the poor, truly. Uh, they're the Robin Hood of mattress companies, for real. And through their uh, 110 program, they donate one mattress for every 10 they sell. That's more than 26,000 mattresses and counting. Uh, Lisa strives to leave the world better than they found it, which, which unlike Poncho, doesn't include killing lots of people. Uh, <laughs> I, love, I love my Lisa, man. So does Queen of the Suck Lindsay and Penny Poopers and Ginger Gigi Bell. They love it too, too. although to be fair. They would probably also sleep on a piece of plywood covered in mud and or shit. I wouldn't call the doodles discerning. However, they do seem to love our Lisa so much they don't want to always get up in the morning with me, which uh, either means they are really, really into our Lisa mattress or they are exceptionally lazy dogs. I don't want to get out of bed in the morning on my Lisa mattress because because uh, I sleep so well. And I, and, I love, and I love sleep. And I bet you love sleep. And I bet you love good sleep. So get your own Lisa mattress. Get $160 off a of Lisa mattress at lisa.com slash timesuck. That's L-E-E-S-A dot com slash time suck. Lisa, a better place to sleep. Link in the episode description. All right. April 29th, June 5th, 1915. General Angeles urges Villa to regroup in Chihuahua. Now, after getting his ass kicked. But instead, he moves what's left of the Division of the North to uh, Guanajuato, Guanto, about 100 kilometers north of Celaya. Uh, Angeles recommends that Villa take a defensive position and secure plays, but Villa instead chooses an indefensible location between Lyon and Trinidad. He bunks down in a 20-kilometer trench, commands his troops. Uh, Obregon could not lead a uh, full assault with his forces, so he orders several lightning strikes against the bunker. Uh, the battle drags on for 50 days, longest in the revolution, with little territorial, yeah, territorial gain for anyone. Zapata eventually sends a large contingent to cut off Obregon's lines of communication, but Obregon reestablishes his contacts and wins another decisive victory. The Battle of Trinidad now costs Villa 3,000 casualties, and, uh, and it costs Obregon his right arm, literally, severed above the elbow by an artillery shell. Surgeons barely manage to save his life. That, that's a tough day, man. You're very happy you won the battle, but you're pretty bummed that an that a artillery shell blew off your arm. Man, so much respect for veterans who have been wounded in battle. Pretty damn amazing and inspiring what you heroes uh, have been able to endure. On October 1915, Villa retreats to Sonora, where he plans to regroup and attack again. However, Carranza has reinforced Sonora, and Villa is defeated. Villa heads back to Chihuahua. October 19, 1915, the U.S. government recognizes that uh, tides have turned. Uh, Villa is not going to win. Uh, they know that the uh, Mexican government, led by uh, Carranza, is in charge now, and, th- and that's who they recognize. December 1915, it's evident to Villa's officers that Obregón and Carranza had won. Most of the Division of the North accepts an offer of amnesty and switches sides. Villa himself is like, ah, I'm going back to the mountains. Let's grab some fucking coffee. 
a uh, couple guns. We're going to wait this out. Uh, this time instead of eight dudes, he takes 200 of his most dedicated men and he just goes out to the mountains and he's, uh, he's like, nah, man, we're going to keep fighting. He's a stubborn son of a bitch, man. He's just like, nah, fuck it. I won with eight before. I could, I could win with 200. I got this. So in 1916, Pancho Villa has his Mexican army. Uh, they've lost U.S. support. They're up high to the mountains. You know, the U.S. is back to Carranza to protect their investments. Then on March 9th, 1916, Villa, he's, uh, he's pissed about all this. He attacks Columbus, New Mexico. He, he really kind of messes up here. He has 400 dudes. He's doubled his uh, 200 men. He, gets, he has a little force of 400 dudes, and he at- makes an attack on U.S. soil. The plan is to defeat uh, the, the small garrison, military garrison in Columbus, make off with some weapons and ammunition. Same plan he had before, man. He's like, uh, you know, let's attack another army to, uh, to provide our own army with more weapons and ammunition. But this time, he attacks an American army on American soil, and, uh, and the attack fails basically on every level. Uh, the, the garrison is much more fortified than Villa had su- suspected, so they weren't able to get the weapons. The bank uh, they were also going to rob goes unrobbed in the area, and, um, and uh, yeah, it does, it does not work out for him. But, the, but the, the, the fame Villa gained by having the guts to attack a town in the U.S. Uh, does give him kind of a new lease on life with recruitment, though. So I guess it succeeds in that way. Recruits are now uh, joining his army again. You know, they think it's pretty badass that he was uh, brave enough to attack the Americans. And, uh, you know, word of his deeds is spreading far and wide again, romanticized. Uh, he gets his mojo back, but he, he did kill 18 Americans, and that does not go unnoticed by the U.S. government. And now uh, former fan, President Wilson, orders the military to capture him. On March 15, 1916, General Jack Pershing, uh, a man who had uh, once studied Villa's military tactics, and 5,000 American soldiers crossed the border into Mexico to hunt down Pancho Villa. Uh, and Pershing's quest was doomed from the start. The people of Mexico loved Villa. They still love this dude. He's still a Robin Hood. And, and just like they didn't assist the Mexican government in helping capture him years earlier, they do not assist the Americans now. And then Villa is able to return to his youthful tactics of just hiding out in the mountains. In late March, he's wounded in a skirmish, and he spends two months recovering alone in the mountains in a hidden cave. He disperses his men into small squads, tells them to go uh, continue to fight while he heals. And he uh, apparently passed the time uh, reading an early 20th century comic that had recently become popular in Mexico, especially among the working class. It was a knockoff of the popular American comic, Pootie and Juju. It's called uh, Paco y Juanita. Popular for their catchphrases, ponlo en tu lonchera, Shirley. And muy poco, también dilo, puri. His favorite episode was Paco y Juanita, numero 19. Paco se un a la revolución. In this episode, the bank Paco works at in Chihuahua is robbed by Pancho Villa himself. And in addition to giving him the money, Paco quits his job and joins the revolution. La gravida a la revolución. Juanita is not happy. It was Paco's turn to make dinner that night, and he was going to make Juanita's favorite meal. Enchiladas de pollo con queso extra. So, she hopped on her horse, Panique Pupa, and took off after Paco, who was riding their other horse, Capania de Hengibre. Juanita found Paco holed up in a mountain camp that night with Pancho. He'd already killed, killed uh, 10 soldados federales and was now making his special enchiladas for Pancho and the other men. Juanita screamed, ¿Has perdido la cabeza, Paco? No, todo está bien, Juanita, said Puri. Muy poco también dil, Puri. And then Pancho rose to his feet, walked over, and kissed Juanita. And yes, in the Mexican version, Juju is definitely a she. Juanita immediately fell in love and would give birth to a son nine months later from just that kiss. That's all. That's how potent Pancho's love was. And Paco would raise this, this boy as his own. Not only upset that, uh, not only not upset that Pancho had impregnated Juanita, but honored. And that child would grow up to become the inspiration for the Dosequi's most interesting man in the world, El Fin. 
And I'm back now. Sorry, new listener. That uh, that must have been incredibly jarring. Nimrod demands that Pootie and Juju or a Spanish version of them or some other version show up from time to time. And I must please Nimrod. Hail Nimrod. Muy poco también deal, Pootie. Oh, April 13th, 1916. Not only had American forces still not captured Villa, uh, now they're being attacked by Carranza's federal troops near Peral, which may sound odd at first, right? Uh, these guys are trying to get uh, Carranza's uh, enemy, and Carranza's like, nah, you did, I'm, I'm attacking you too. And he did that because he didn't give Wilson permission to send troops across the border, even if they were pursuing a man who was his enemy. Uh, June 16th, or, or I'm sorry, June 1916, Mexican-American relations uh, suffered another blow when federal troops engaged two troops, the 10th, U.S. Cavalry near uh, Carrizal. In the fighting, seven Americans are killed, 23 are captured, and then they, uh, they decide to head home. January 27th. I guess they had, yeah, a little while after that. It's a little while after that. By, by January 27, 1917, they decided to head home. Pershing begins to head back to the U.S., abandoning his fruitless search for Villa. Villa is still in the hills, in the mountains of northern Mexico, where he would continue to attack small federal garrisons and elude capture until 1920, when the political situation finally changed and he felt comfortable come out of hiding. I do think that's hilarious. That, like, General Pershing is down there trying to get Villa, trying to get the dude that uh, um, Carranza is also trying to get. But Carranza doesn't like that they're there without his permission. He's like, no, 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 you, no, we got this. You get, And then he fights him. And meanwhile, Villa still just rem- eludes capture from everyone, just still just hides out in the mountains. Uh, okay. So, on April 10th, 1919, Villa's old ally Zapata is killed in an ambush most likely orchestrated by Obregón. Right, these guys are t- these former revolutionary, you know, uh, team members are turning on each other, have been turning on each other. Then on June first, nineteen nineteen, Obregón announces his campaign for presidency against Carranza. On May twenty first, nineteen twenty, Carranza is assassinated via his former ally and foe, now dead. He feels comfortable that he can come out of hiding. Then from June first to November thirtieth, uh, nineteen twenty, Adolfo de la Huerta acts as president. He was appointed interim president by the Congress. This Huerta, uh, completely unrelated to the earlier General Huerta. Pablo had fought against. July 1920, Pancho Villa and 900 men ride to Sabinas, uh, Coahuila, uh, send a tele- telegram to De La Huerta, recognize, uh, they, you know, saying they recognize his government, request amnesty. The death of Carranza is a big opportunity for Pancho Villa. He begins negotiations with the government to disarm and stop fighting. Although, although Obregón was against it, provincial president Adolfo De La Huerta sees it as an opportunity and brokers a deal with Villa in July. And then Villa is given a large hacienda, 25,000-acre farm called uh, Cantaludo, uh, 500,000 gold pesos. Many of his men join him. Uh, veterans are all uh, given uh, mustering out pay. He's allowed to keep 200 of his men from the Northern Division, 50 of which would serve as personal bodyguards. An amnesty is declared for Villa, his officers, and his men. Eventually, even Obregón saw the wisdom of peace with Villa, honors the deal. And he goes from sharecropper to hacienda owner in uh, not too many years, really. Not bad. Villa uh, settles into to farm life, gets to work. He brings uh, in machinery, installs workshops. One of his first actions is to build a school, which he named Felipe Angelis School in honor of his military strategist. Quickly, his ranch begins planting wheat, corn, and beans. He establishes a bank in order to give credit to other farmers. Uh, he wants his farm to be a model of uh, how all Mexicans farms, uh, Mexico's farms can be. In October 1920, Villa's old ally and, uh, and then enemy and then kind of ally, Obregón, is elected president, takes over in December, and the revolution is over. Man, so much just uh, changing of the card. Just so much. It's year after year. There's a new regime in power. Uh, despite his attack on American soil, the Americans, uh, the American press once again falls in love with Villa and his story. He becomes a working class folk hero north of the border as well as south. On June 22nd, 1922, uh, Villa makes what will be a fatal mistake. 
He does an interview for El Universal, uh, the newspaper in Mexico. And while he denies that he'll take up arms against Obregón, uh, the still battle-ready 44-year-old Pancho also warns that, quote, I am a real soldier. I can mobilize 40,000 soldiers in 40 minutes. <laughs> I, love, I love the bravado. There are thousands of Mexicans who are still my supporters. He also makes it clear that he wants Adolfo de la Huerta to win the upcoming presidential election by saying Adolfo is very intelligent, very patriotic, and he will be a good president. Then he whips his dick out and he beats the reporter to death. And that's what people thought was too far. Feel it. Feel the wrath of my Mexican trouser python. Of course, that doesn't, that doesn't happen. Uh, the interview doesn't go well uh, with Obregón because, you know, uh, this guy who's in charge now, Villa is saying like, hey, man, any, any fucking time, 40 minutes, I can get 40,000 dudes. And he claims, you know, support for, this, for the dude who's running against the guy in power. And uh, if we've learned anything in this episode, it's that, uh, you know, uh, that's, how you, that's how you die if you don't support the guy in power in Mexico and during this uh, or nearly 20th and 19th centuries. Um, July 29th, uh, 1923, Villa leaves Peral, his little village, to head to, nearby, uh, to his nearby hacienda. He takes only a few bodyguards with him instead of the roughly 50 he'd recently been using. Uh, Pancho Villa, he's just 45 years old. And that morning, he speaks to one of his guards. I guess maybe he had a premonition about his death, saying, I say Paral is a good place to die. Who can assure us this won't be the last time we see each other? Now, is this legend added later, or did he really feel his own death approaching? We'll, we'll never know. Uh, as he approaches Paral, uh, Paral uh, there were no police in the streets. As it turned out, there were dozens of snipers hiding in town waiting for him. The snipers had bribed an old man who sold candy in town to run in front of the car shouting, Via, uh, Viva Villa once! If Via was driving and twice if he was in the back seat. About eight o'clock in the morning, Do- the Dodge Via was driving passes through the designated part of town. The old man runs out. He yells it once. Assassins pop out and just rain gunfire down upon his car. Like uh, this is uh, this is like Bonnie and Clyde final shootout kind of gunfire. You know, they just they light up uh, his car. And uh, Via, who'd been driving, was killed almost instantly. The three other men in the car with him were also killed, including the chauffeur and Via's personal secretary. And one bodyguard who later died of his injuries. Uh, another bodyguard was injured. I guess one, I guess one did live because another bodyguard was injured but managed to escape. I don't know why I said everybody. Total of 40 shots came down in the car, nine of which hit Via. Four of them hit him in the head. Uh, they were taking no chances. They fired dum-dum bullets, which, is, which are rounds normally used for hunting big game because they're, uh, they're designed to expand greatly on impact for further damage. They just obliterate him. On a July 21st, 1923, Pancho Villa is buried in the Peral Cemetery, the principal of the uh, school at his hacienda gave the address at his funeral. He demanded justice as well for Pancho Villa. The question of who killed Pancho was on everyone's lips. Villa had many enemies. The enemies included, of course, the person most people think did it, President Alvaro Obregón. Right? They clashed many times on the field of battle. You know, Obregón generally emerging victorious. The two uh, remained on speaking terms since his surrender. But, you know, Obregón, uh, you know, smartly feared Villa's popularity and reputation, didn't like what he had said in the paper, uh, you know, again, he knew that if uh, Villa rebelled, he could make real trouble for him. So it's better off, uh, better off for him to be dead. Minister of the Interior, Plutarco Elias Calles, is also suspected. Uh, Calles was a northerner like Villa, had become a general in the revolution by 1915. He was a shrewd politician, aligned himself with winners throughout the conflict, bouncing around from side to side. He held important posts in state governments, and Carranza made him Minister of the Interior, and he helped Obregón betray Carranza, a close ally of Obregón. Uh, he stood to take the presidency in 1924. He hated Villa, having fought him in the revolution on more than one occasion, and it was well known that Villa opposed Calles' uh, economic policies. So maybe maybe the two of them worked together, you know? Maybe Calles and Obregón uh, worked together to get him out. There was uh, Melaton Lozoya, 
Could have been behind it. He was, he was the administrator of the hacienda before it was given to Villa. So, you know, he probably didn't really love having his land taken from him and given over to Villa. Uh, also, Lasoyo had embezzled huge sums from the hacienda while he was in charge, and Villa demanded it back or else. Uh, the gift was apparently on such a scale that Lasoyo could not hope to repay it, and he may have killed Villa just to avoid, you know, being killed for failing to repay this, this debt. There was also Jesus Herrera. The Herrera family had been loyal via supporters at the outset of the revolution. Uh, Maclovio and Luis, Luis Herrera had been officers in his army. They betrayed him, however, and joined Carranza. Maclovio and Luis were killed in the Battle of Torreón. Via captured Jose de Luz Herrera in March of 1919 and executed him and his two sons. Jesus Herrera, the lone surviving member of the family, was a sworn via enemy after all that. Yeah, not surprising. And had to try previously to assassinate him numerous times. There was another... Uh, Jesus, Jesus Salas Barraza. Uh, Salas was another old revolutionary who had joined the uh, fight against Victor- Victoriano Huerta. After Huerta's defeat, Salas joined Obregón and Carranza against Villa. 1922, he's elected congressman from Durango. Never forgot his old grievances against Villa. Uh, there was the governor of Durango, uh, Jesus Agustin Castro. He's fucking so many Jesuses. Uh, Castro was another former foe of Villa, supporter of Carranza. So there's a lot of people, you know. Uh, down there, and also the American government. Uh, could have been the American government, right? You know, he never did. They never did capture him. Uh, he was a wild card who had attacked that new Mexican uh, army outpost. He was a constant threat to destabilize Mexico, where the U.S. had a lot of money still invested. Still had oil down there. They wanted to keep it flowing, uh, and they were back in the current government. So that's, uh, that's possible. We'll never know for sure. Could have been a combination of the above suspects. Probably it was the uh, current president, Obregón. So that's uh, that's that. And uh, in 1926, Villa's tomb is broken into. His coffin was torn to pieces. His corpse uh, had been taken out. His head was chopped off. Legend has it that some insane, unnamed, wealthy collector of famous people's heads uh, ended up with it. Seriously, apparently there was legend there was some dude out there who had a collection of the heads of famous people. Uh, could be just an urban legend. By the time officials had reached the cemetery, souvenir hunters had gotten to the body, begun cutting off pieces. Uh, actually, recently, it's 2010. The Wall Street Journal reported that Pancho Villa's alleged right index finger was for sale in a pawn shop in El Paso for about ten grand. Uh, in 1976, what was left of Pancho Villa's remains without the head, that was never recovered, moved to the Monument of the Revolution where all of the other heroes of the war are laid to rest. He now sleeps beside his old friend Madero, uh, that, that one politician he loved. In 1981, a statue of Villa was unveiled in Tucson. Uh, Pancho Villa's son and granddaughter were at the ceremony. I mean, his son had to be old as shit. Uh, he had a statue on the highest point uh, uh, of Z- Zacatecas, uh, where his most important battle during the revolution was won as well. He, or he has that statue now. And that takes us out of today's Time Suck timeline. Good job, soldier. You made it back. Barely. So the legend of Pancho Villa. It's a good one, isn't it? Uh, sorry about the, any, any, any pronunciation blunders. I did my best. Some of those words were a little easier than others. Uh, Pancho, man, he, he was the man who, according to one newspaper journalist, could march 100 miles without stopping, live 100 days without food, go 100 nights without sleep, and kill 100 men without remorse. In his own words, Pancho describes himself as a man whose sole ambition is to rid Mexico of the class that has oppressed her and give the people a chance to know what real liberty means. And if I could bring that about today by giving up my life, I would do it gladly. That's what he said, and uh, I believe him. He's a brave fighter, man who stuck to his ideals of liberation for the poor until the very end. You know, a lot of people consider him a ruthless uh, kind of murderer, uh, you know, and a womanizer. He was very fond of mistresses, but, you know, no one's perfect. Yeah, he did, he did kill a lot of people, but it was kind of, you know, uh, a time of ongoing war. 
He definitely seemed to be braver than anyone I know, and, uh, and he seems like a damn hero to me. But that's just what I think. What does, the, what does the ignorant horde think? Let's find out on today's Idiots of the Internet. Idiots of the Internet. All right, this week, under a video titled Pancho Villa on the Border, which shows a little of that footage that wasn't lost from the life of General Villa, that lost movie, uh, <laughs> I found one of the most prolific and furious idiots I've seen in a while on the web. Uh, someone who goes on YouTube by the username of Aztec Empire. The rage of the Aztec Empire is triggered when YouTube user uh, Adversary American posts, Well, when Pancho Villa heard that the American army was coming, he ran all the way back into Mexico and he hid like a scared little girl. Otherwise, it takes no balls to attack an undefended town, which is what Pancho Villa's bandits did on multiple occasions and instead got their asses handed to them by those same quote-unquote white people whom they raided. And the white people didn't cover their ears. They fought him, and they defeated his villistas in combat. And Aztec Empire, like, really does not care for this. He doesn't like it. He fuck. he hates it. He replies with one of the angriest rants uh, I've seen, I've read in a while on YouTube, saying, Adversary American, bitch, you speak like a coward. You and the white Yankees were cowards. Look, you fucking idiot. Pancho Villa defeated USA in USA soil and in Mexico. Tell me this. Why didn't they capture him or destroy his army? Huh, you stupid fuck. Like it or not, the truth is Pancho Villa beat USA. Made them look like a bunch of pussies. I bet you will never, ever say some shit like that to Pancho Villa. Faces. Nor will you say it in front of me nor any Mexican. Then he goes all caps. You coward. Pancho Villa defeated the USA and you just can't accept the truth of it. Like it or not, Pancho Villa and his army of rebels wanted, like it or not, Hijo de tu puta madre. Which loosely translates, according to Google Translate, as son of your mother slut. Then he goes uh, back to, you know, lowercase, but still angry. You are just too blind and a fucking stupid fuck. (laughs) This is, he's still going. Uh, Pancho Villa defeated USA. (laughs) He said that like so many times now. Remember the ass whooping Pancho Villa. Hide out sometimes because he had no weapons nor men to fight USA at first. Due to the fact of his early battles that he had lost men. But he never ran. Bitch, he fought them out of Mexico, bitch. (laughs) USA went back home with nothing but defeat while Pancho Villa continued to destroy more border town. And another thing, all the white fucks he killed was out of revenge from what Texas Rangers were doing to innocent Mexicans who had been living in Texas, New Mexico, that were being killed by Texas Rangers who are cowards. That's why Pancho Villa and his warriors destroyed USA border towns. And killed thousands of USA soldiers in Mexico, like cutting off their ears and feeding them to wild coyotes and wild dogs. In the end, Pancho Villa won the war and USA could not do shit about it. But except the fact that a poor-ass Mexican gave them a beat-down lesson to remember. Don't fuck with Mexico. Viva Pancho Villa y viva Mexico. So go on, bitch. Cry. Pancho Villa won. Ha ha. Like it or not. <laughs> Wow, that was a lot of info. That was a lot of rage. Aztec Empire just threw at us. Not sure how much of it was true. Uh, Like Aztec Empire, I am a fan. I'm a fan of Pancho Villa. I don't doubt. Uh, There were some things. The Rangers had gotten to some controversial stuff on the border. They did kill some uh, Mexican citizens, for sure. Um, I have no reason to to hide Pancho's exploits. Um, Did not come across in my research anything about feeding thousands of American ears to coyotes, though. Or Or as we call them, Idaho coyotes. Uh, I feel like that would have come up on a top 10 list, you know? Number one, Pancho Villa fed thousands of ears to coyotes. That's a detail you know damn well I would have included. Okay. Uh, sorry if you can hear the police siren that I can hear. 
If you can't, don't even worry about it. Uh, okay, then user Jason's Frontier, he sees Aztec uh, Empire's rant and decides, you know what? Why don't I shake this hornet's nest up a little bit? He posts, uh, I think you need a speaking spell. <laughs> Your gibberish is hard to understand. The freedom you want is real awesome. Cartels, filth, dirty water, kidnappings, bad economy, corruption of just about everything. It's the great, if the great freedom that you fought uh, for and are so proud of, why are you enthralled about coming to the USA? If Mexico is such an awesome, free, proud country, why would anyone want to leave? If you send a nasty comeback full of hate words and names, then maybe you're the one who needs an education. That's kind of... <laughs> That's kind of a weird thing to put in. What a, what a dickhead move uh, by Jason there. Like he shits on the country, borderline. You know, I guess I guess maybe not racist, but it, fe- it doesn't it doesn't feel good what he's saying. You know, like uh, like like his perception of the country is a little a little skewed. And then he's like, "But don't if you send something angry back, then you need then you're the dummy." Come on, dude, you're just trying to rile him. Clearly, well, it works. Aztec Empire responds with as expected, so much uh, rage, hate, and a, and some more questionable facts. He says, Jason's Frontier, look, you idiot, we Mexicans are at homeland. We didn't cross the border, the border crossed us, and we are happy. Don't worry about Mexico. Mexico is doing just fine. Worry about your own fucked up nation, you fucks. You fucks have a clown as president. Trump, haha. your own nation is already falling apart while Mexico is getting richer and stronger. Don't believe? Just look it up. The economy show you in 2050 your nation will be shit. No more, not even a world power, but Mexico will. Though don't hate us for having love and pride in our country, you white fucks are not even... At your own land, America is not yours. America will always be for the real Americans like us and all the Native Americans. You whites came to our lands, and now we are just taking back within your own nation. Just look around you. There's more Mexicans than whites. Why did you whites come here? No. Why did why did you whites came here? No. Anyway, I don't know what he's trying to say there. But he, then, he, then he says, you no, oh, no one invited you fucks here. You all just came here. Now we are doing the same, so fuck you. Okay. Pretty racist against whites. I don't care for that part. Uh, but got to say, his point of no one invited you, you just came here, and now we're doing the same in your land, uh, that's pretty That's pretty funny. That's pretty funny to me. That does seem pr- pretty true. You know, if you want to think about history, no no one wanted the initial white European settlers to come to America. We just showed the fuck up. And, uh, and now Mexicans are coming, you know, quote, unquote, illegally into our nation, and some Americans are just beyond outraged. Oh, my God, my neighbor Jim, this old man who immigration will affect approximately dick in his life it will affect him in literally no way whatsoever other than letting him buy cheaper produce. And, uh, he, he's outraged. He's a very, very, very hard conservative. He's outraged. But, uh, I mean, it, it is crazy. Like be outraged, I guess. Uh, you know, if, if it really is messing your life up somehow, if immigration really is affecting you somehow, but know that this country and most countries were founded on illegal immigration of some form. You know, the American Indians, they felt their land was theirs. You know, this land was theirs. We took it. I'm glad we did. Cause now I get to live here. <laughs> but, uh, you know, that doesn't make it any different than a technically illegal entry now. It is funny to me when some people, it's like, man, people's, people's memories are short when it comes to stuff. Um, all this being said doesn't mean Aztec Empire is not nuts. He, he really does seem to, to have a, a strong racial hatred of white people. Uh, all racism is idiotic, including the, the shit that comes towards whites. Uh, I swear to God, there are easily over 100 more posts that go back and forth between Aztec Empire and various other people trying to rile him. Like he spent a full day. On this, on, on the comment thread of this one video, just ah, I can't, ah, I can't take it anymore. Here are some of his angriest posts. Uh, he says, uh, "Adversary American, it is so funny how you tried to tell me your history. You fuck, you knew nothing." And then all caps. Pancho Villa gave USA a beatdown to remember, motherfucker. The next one's in all all caps. 
It says, uh, George Patton, Blackjack, Nimitz, MacArthur, all were beaten by Pancho Villa. To this day in Mexico, they have the American flag of when Villa's men took it from them, uh, took it from the American fort in Columbus, New Mexico. Uh, now, it took me a second to figure out what he's talking about there with Blackjack, Nimitz, MacArthur. Well, Blackjack was General John Pershing's nickname. It was John Jack Black uh, Pershing. Uh, he, that is the general who went after Villa. That makes some sense. Nimitz re- probably probably refers to Admiral Chesty Nimitz, who was born in Texas, played a major role in uh, some World War II naval victories. I didn't, I couldn't find any information about him uh, fighting Poncho, but okay, maybe he did. You know, it could be out there. It could be in some, uh, you know, uh, library somewhere. General Patton, best known for his leadership on the shores of Normandy in World War II, he did find his first military experience in Mexico looking for Poncho Villa. So uh, thanks, Aztec Empire, for, uh, for pointing me in that direction. Um, so, all right, he made some good points there in his rage. And then his next comment, a little less history, a little more anger to some other person, to Sandia Bill 1. He says, bitch, go fuck yourself, puto. I don't give a fuck what you have to say because you are just another puto fuck you and your family. Okay, looks like they're not going to be sharing drinks at the bar anytime soon. Uh, finally, Aztec Empire, he he gets angry about someone insinuating that Pancho Villa looked kind of white. He's very anti-white. Brian Jimenez posts, Pancho Villa was pretty white himself. And Aztec quickly corrects him saying, Brian Jimenez, no, he wasn't. He was brown. And then Maria Ramirez tries to introduce some history, uh, saying, most Mexicans have white in them, dumbass. Mexicans uh, mostly are a mix between Native and European. Ever heard of the Spanish Inquisition? Take a history class sometime. Uh, Well, Maria, I I will say it's less the Inquisition and more Spanish colonialism that you're thinking of. I don't think there was a lot of uh, priests spreading their seed. I don't think there was a lot of priests fucking going on, at least not in uh, in vaginas. Uh, They they tended to prefer historically the other side. Uh, Spanish colonial settlers... Not the Catholic clergy were, were breeding with the locals in mass, though. Aztec Empire doesn't like this, though. He doesn't like any insinuation that any part of Mexico could be white. He says, Maria Ramirez, bitch, I have learned true history, not the bullshit they teach in schools. Yeah, most Mexicans have Spanish, but that does not make them Spanish. All the Mexicans come from the Mexicas, dumbass. And most of them were brown, just like Pancho Villa. Don't test my history, boy. Mexicans are Mexicas. Uh, Mexicas, excuse me. Not Spain, fool. We want our freedom from them evil fucks. Go back to history class. Learn some real facts of Mexican history. Oh, man. Aztec Empire, you show glimpses of intelligence moments, but overall, you, you seem like you're a real dumbass. All right? Just because somebody won a revolution, that doesn't change their genealogy. The race is what the race is. It doesn't A victory doesn't affect that. Uh, yeah, many Mexicans are a mish, mishmash of indigenous people and Spanish, you know, uh, blood. That's what happens when you interbreed for centuries. That's, that's how I supposedly have some Cherokee and Blackfoot inside of me, right? Europeans and indigenous, a little mix. That's what happens when a when a boat of mostly young, horny dudes shows up in a new land full of young, attractive women who haven't been told that God wants their hymens to remain intact as a Joan of Arc. Right? As she thought. A fuck fest kicks off between hard, veiny, European cock and sweet American Indian pussy. Don't be mad about it. You probably have some white in you, Aztec Empire. It's where your anger comes from. I get it. Historically, we whites, we white, whitish meat sacks seem to be real angry people. Uh, keep being angry. It's fun. I like it. But do yourself a favor and, and learn a little more about the history of your own people, history you are clearly passionate about, so you can direct that anger more consistently in the right direction. Understand your history and, uh, and stop being a, a rage-fueled idiot of the Internet. Idiots of the Internet. Oh, uh, man, I, I did enjoy reading his rants. I, I, loved, I love reading about rage. I love, I love watching rage, man. I am one of those people. I know it's probably not morally correct, but like when I hear a fight start to break out, ooh, I am on it. I'm watching like a hawk. Okay, so now you know a lot more than you did 90 minutes ago about Pancho Villa. Real badass, man. Couple more fun facts about him. He was he was so often on horseback during the Mexican Revolution that he earned the nickname the Centaur of the North. I love that. 
Uh, it's, a, it's at odds with his macho man image, but Pancho Villa never drank during the revolution. He allowed his men to drink, but he himself waited until, uh, uh, you know, life after his 1920 peace with Alvaro Abregón uh, to have a cocktail. He wanted to stay sharp for the fighting. Uh, Villa was not afraid to get his hands dirty. He personally killed many men on the battlefield. Uh, there were some jobs, however, that he found too repulsive to do. And for those jobs, he had a man named Rodolfo Fierro, a sociopathic hitman who fanatically uh, was loyal to him and absolutely fearless. According to legend, Fierro once shot a guy dead just to see if he would fall forward or backward, like he was just curious. Uh, the loss of Fierro on a campaign, on a military campaign in 1915, was a huge blow to Villa. And it was uh, said he was quite fond of a quote attributed to his old friend Emiliano Zapata, uh, who said, It is better to die on your feet than to live on your knees. Killing in the name of words to live by. Uh, now let's take a look back at today's words with today's top five takeaways. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Number one. Pancho Villa was born Jose Dorotoyo Arango Arambula in 1878, a dirt poor son of a sharecropper. And he died in 1923 as Mexico's most famous revolutionary fighter, a man almost as famous in America as he was in the United States, and uh, the owner of one of, the, of a, one of those giant haciendas he would have been laughed at for thinking he could ever own as a child. Number two, Pancho even attacked the United States at one point. On March 9, 1916, Villa and his men attacked the town of Columbus, New Mexico seeking to steal munitions and rob banks. The attack was a failure. As the U.S. garrison drove them off, the U.S. organized a punitive expedition led by General John Jack Black Pershing to track Villa down, and for months, thousands of U.S. soldiers searched northern Mexico for Villa in vain. Number three, his death remains a mystery. In 1923, Villa was coldly gunned down as he drove to the town of Paral. Although most historians blame Alvaro Obregón for the act, there is still a bit of mystery surrounding his murder. Number four, Pancho's favorite comic book was Paco y Juanita. Muy poco también del puri. Number five, new info. Do yourself a favor and watch and starring Pancho Villa as himself. I hadn't heard of this movie prior to this research. 2003 HBO movie. They got almost zero press, which is a shame because it's fucking great. Like for real. Got me really pumped for today's suck. If you got HBO Go, man, just check it out. Antonio Banderos plays Pancho. He kills it. Seriously, great hidden gem of a film. Uh, features one of my favorite actors, Alan Arkin. That guy's a is a damn treasure. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Pancho Villa has been sucked. That was a real fun excuse to learn a lot about Mexico in addition to Pancho. Uh, good to know your neighbors, man, especially that one, as we're going to have an immigration suck coming sometime later this summer. Uh, big thanks to the Time Suck team, Harmony Velikamp, poster of the best memes on Time Suck's Instagram, other social media outlets. Yes, Harmony, I do promise we'll get going on Discord one of these days. Uh, uh, editor Jesse Dobner finally got him uh, notes a few days ahead of recording. Uh, Reverend Dr. Joe Paisley, still need to give Joe a proper introduction. It's going to happen soon after the man settles in. Gets us a, a new sweet sound template going for future episodes. Oh, and Harmony, by the way, has a GoFundMe campaign. Uh, she's having a, a very complicated pregnancy. Uh, if you want to help her out, uh, you, you can find her uh, via our social media. You can contact Time Suck Social Media. You can just uh, – you can um, – you can Google uh, Harmony Velocamp GoFundMe and, and get it right there. I will do my best to put the, a reminder in the episode description. Thanks to uh, Alex Dugan, the Bit Elixir team, Danger Brain, Eric Radiker, Queen of the Suck, Lindsey Cummins. Huge thanks to Bojangles Research All-Star Heather Rylander. Uh, she gave me great info to get going on today's Suck. We love Heather. Uh, Want to meet some fellow time suckers? Well, head to the private Facebook group while we still work on the uh, message board that will that we'll get here one of these days on the website and the app. 
uh, Time Sucker private Facebook uh, link provided in the episode description. Bonus episode. Holy fuck are we going dark this Friday. Jesus Christ. We look into the horrific, sadistic life and crimes of the toy box killer, David Parker Ray. Uh, you know, sometimes I, I, I will say it's, I don't know, it probably sounds horrible that, uh, some serial killer stories are kind of like repetitive and boring. Like there's so much darkness we get exposed to in the media. It's like, okay, all right. Another person who killed somebody. Great. Another piece of shit. I, I was darkly captivated. I, I, I wanted to like somehow conjure this guy back to life just so I could kill him with my bare hands. I hated him so much. Once I got into the research, it is the most fucked up research the most disturbing things I think I've ever read in my life. It is the darkest episode of Time Suck yet. It's going to haunt me. Uh, this piece of shit kidnapped and tortured women in this $100,000 fuck dungeon slash steel trailer he built that I've seen pictures of that looks like something out of one of the Saw movies. Women would be held for days on end in this box. They would be electrocuted, cut, torn, savagely raped by multiple people, raped by animals. It is the craziest shit I've ever read. It all happened in the small New Mexico town of Elephant Butte in the 90s. It's a very adult episode, one that's going to make you wonder what the hell may be going on in your own neighborhood. Freaked me out and honestly, again, just captivated me with just such over-the-top, insane darkness. It is it, – it's like a, a an advertisement for maybe you shouldn't get that into S&M. Man, it, it, it reads – the tale of the Toy Box Killer reads like a story of an impossibly evil Stephen King monster. But he was real. And some of his accomplices were real, are real, are still alive today. One of them walking free and uh, two others about to get out of jail. Very disturbing. Uh, and we're going to, yeah, deep dive uh, that on Friday. And now let's dive into today's Time Sucker updates. Updates. Get your Time Sucker updates. Starting off with an Aztec uh, sucked update from longtime sucker, Josh DeCruz. Uh, he says, hey, Dan, great suck on the Aztecs. Ancient history is my bread and butter. And he knocked out of the park. Ah, oh, thank you. I, I, I know you're not talking about pronunciations, but I'm glad I got some of the details right. Just a fun fact for you. Uh, there's a new group of academics who firmly believe that the Olmec civilization was started by Africans who sailed from Africa to the New World. What evidence do they have for this? The, he says the fucking Olmec head carvings look kind of African. It's stupid as shit, but a professor of mine actually believes this shit, and the other professors laughed at him. Uh, when when you do a Mayan suck, let me know so I can send some stuff your way. Well, thank you, Josh. A Mayan suck down the road would be great, man. Uh, yes. Uh, after uh, touching on them and the Aztecs, I do want to learn more about the Mayans. And uh, so many good I- idiot uh, of the internet comments, I'm sure, are going to be in the uh, Mayan suck. You know, all that stuff about their doomsday calendar. Got to remember people getting worked up about that. Uh, some quick ear sack math. <laughs> yeah. Uh, now time for some earsack math regarding the battle between the Mongols and Knights Templar. Figured out by Time Sucker and Space Lizard, Tony uh, Giordano. Now, I shared Tony's voice message in The Secret Suck, but wanted to pass it along in, in today's uh, Time Suck as well. He says, Dear Master, Dan the Man, Cummins the Fourth, Prophet of Nimrod, Bojangles' long-lost fifth testicle, Space Lizard Tony, a.k.a. Fang, a.k.a. David Icke's second-to-back-left-lizard Mauler here. I sent in a voice message about this, but I feel like I was a jumbling mess with nerves, so I saw I'd send it in here. No, you did great, man. I love playing it. The other night, I was listening to your Knights Templar suck on the way back to the pub, and uh, and you went out on a tangent about ears and potato sacks that got me thinking. How many ears can fit in a potato sack? Yes, because uh, I was talking about the uh, Mongols putting, uh, you know, they cut off ears, put them in sacks to show how many people they killed in battle. So he says, do not for some shitty 
half-drunken mass at the bar and sitting on it for a couple days. I figured it out. I posted the work on the Space Lizards Facebook page. <laughs> uh, but I estimated that you can fit 8,600 average size ears into your average size potato sack. So your more than 1,000 was totally correct. Yeah, man, it's way more than 1,000. Just thought you'd find that interesting. I do. Thanks for all you do. Keep me, uh, thanks for keeping me sane while I sneak uh, uh, your podcast at work. Keep on sucking, you beautiful bearded bastard. Peace. Thank you, Tony. I love that you get obsessed with weird shit just like I do, you beautiful bastard. That is a shit ton of ears. And, uh, and now, uh, a bunch of info coming your way about the Donner Party. Thanks to Time Sucker and Donner Party trivia champion, Kayla Miller. Kayla says, hey, Master Sucker, I'm a total Donner Party nerd, so I was super excited with this new episode. Uh, I've been obsessed with the history of this since I was little and have done a bunch of research on the party. I just pictured this little kid like just reading about these cannibals. And I dragged my husband to the museum in Truckee more times than I'm pleased to admit. Okay, wow. So Kayla is serious. So I thought I'd share a few fun facts you may or may not have encountered in your research. You talked about camping sucking, but for the Reeds, it sucked a little bit less for a while. Reed had constructed a palace car that was ginormous, two stories, required way more oxen to pull, and even had a stove in it. That's amazing. They eventually had to totally abandon it in the Salt Lake Desert, but it probably helped the trip uh, for quite a while for his group. Yeah, wow. I bet that palace car did help the Reeds. Man, they had a fucking stove in that? Uh, they were the one big family, you know, as I said, in the group to escape with no loss of life that horrible winter. Uh, Sarah Keys, Reed's mother-in-law, was a tough lady. In her younger days, she had actually traveled Daniel Boone's Wilderness Trail. That's awesome. So, so she wasn't just some old tag-along who died right away in the trip. No, that's incredible. She was a pioneer, and she wasn't on her first rodeo. Uh, while on their journey through the desert, the Reeds had their dogs sleep over them on the ground. Family accounts say that they, uh, they think the only thing that kept them from freezing to death some nights was the heat from the dogs. Now that, that's a good dog. That's some good dogs, man. I don't, uh, I don't think my dogs would do that. I think Penny Pooper and uh, Gigi, I think Ginger Bell, would, they would sleep under me on a cold night just hoping that I kept them alive. Uh, Tamsin allegedly had sewn a large amount of gold into a quilt that, ended, that they ended up burying when they got to the Salt Lake Desert. As far as I've heard, no one has ever recovered anything to prove this, but it was interesting nonetheless. That'd be fucking cool to find. Can you imagine? You're out there doing whatever the hell people do in the Salt Lake Desert. I don't know, dune bugging or some shit. Racing on the salt, salt flats. And then you, you find a gold quilt. Oh, that'd be, a, that'd be amazing. Get, get to the desert with your gold detectors. Report back. Uh, when they abandoned their belongings, Patty Reed kept a tiny little hidden doll in her pocket, which made it all the way through the winter and on to California, currently on display at Stutter's Fort. When Reed was banished, they sent him off with very little, by the way, of supplies. His family members allegedly snuck off that night, brought him supplies that no doubt actually helped him make it to California and then helped save the group. Yes, you're 100% correct. I did read that. It's was, it was one of the details I just didn't include to keep the narrative moving. Uh, his daughter supposedly snuck off. It was the one who did it and gave him a rifle. In addition, yeah, to food and other supplies that did allow him to survive on his own and make it all the way to Sutter's Fort. Uh, before coming back and leading rescue parties, Reed actually fought the Mexican-American War. Uh, didn't know that. Man, they were quite the family. Uh, while many of the families did resort to cannibalism, there were a number of families that were not forced to do to those measures, including the Reeds. Uh, is your is your last name actually Reed, Kayla? This feels like a big PR campaign for the Reed family. Uh, in Truckee, you can currently view the stone where the Murphys had their cabin, a statue showing how high the snow was. It's unreal. And memorials for the Reed and Donner Camps. At the Donner Camp site, the park is called Donner Camp and Picnic Grounds, which me and my family always chuckle at. Yes, that's pretty ballsy. To include picnic grounds in a description of the Donner Party Memorial. You know a lot of dark laughs were had when that sign was put up. Uh, Hastings of the Cutoff fame was a pretty interesting character. The Cutoff he promoted in his book, Immigrant's Guide to the Oregon and California, 
it is an interesting read if you have the chance. Had only been on, he'd only been on the cutoff on a horse and had never traveled it with the wagon before he printed that. Uh, after the Donner Party story was popularized, he went to fight for the Confederates and then bailed to Brazil and published the Immigrant's Guide to Brazil and then died leading sellers in St. Thomas. Crazy guy. Yeah, you'd think after the Donner Party mishap, he might slow his roll a little bit when he came to writing guidebooks. Uh, maybe, maybe not write another trail book, but uh, maybe, I don't know, maybe he wanted to redeem himself. Uh, one parting quote I love from Virginia Reed is, remember, never take no cutoffs and hurry along as fast as you can. All right. Good advice. Uh, always seems like a great summation of the story. Hope you thought this was interesting. Thanks for covering the story. Always love reliving the research. Thanks, Kayla. I did find all of that interesting. Kayla, thank you for such an informative update. Uh, we have a military time sucker heading out to serve his country. I'd like to say hi. The man, the myth, the legend. Alan Howell writes in. Saying, hey, suck master, tomorrow I leave for the army and won't be able to hear Monday suck, and that sucks pretty hard. Being part of the cult of the curious has been awesome. I will continue to suck when I get back or go on my first tour of duty. Whichever comes first, keep those sucks coming. Truly curious, Private Howe. Well, thank you for your service, Private Howe. Uh, honored to have you in the cult of the curious. Uh, guess you may have to hear this when you, uh, when you get back, man. We'll miss you. Stay safe. We'll be here waiting for you when you get back. Uh, and I had numerous suckers writing in to say I got them with that McGill's pop bullshit. You know, that story I made up about how if you get cholera, you can shit so hard, you can actually literally shit your butthole off. And I got Jeff Beck, who wrote, Dear Master Sucker Ultimate Supreme, you sweet mother sucker, you got me. I immediately started Googling McGill's pop. (laughs) And as I started to scroll, you pulled me back into reality. I prided myself on making it all the way through every episode without being fooled. But God damn it, this one was too good to not wish it was true. I wanted so badly for it to be true. Lisa Fina really got in my head for this one. How fucking funny would that be? Just, uh-oh, Johnny. Lost his butthole. Uh, you beautiful son of a bitch. Keep up the good work. Hail Nimrod. Praise to Bojangles. Be gone, Lucifina. Glory to Michael motherfucking McDonald. Sincerely, your loyal suck prentice, Jeff. Well, Jeff, uh, thank you for sharing that. Uh, that makes me laugh so hard. I know. And that's kind of what, where my mind with it, too. It's, just, it's so ridiculous. Obviously, it's terrible if it happens to you. But the thought of someone having such explosive diarrhea that they somehow which is physically impossible, shit off their own butthole. It's just cartoonishly ridiculous. Uh, finally, a belated anniversary shout-out uh, to Alex Hurd. Uh, his lady, Alex wrote in saying, Hey, Dan, I want to know if you could do me a solid. Can you give me a shout-out to my beautiful wife, Alyssa, in this next upcoming suck on July 2nd? Sorry I missed the second, Alex, but I got you this week. I still got you. Just a week late. Our, our first wedding anniversary is July 1st. She deserves a small surprise, even if she hates him. I'm completely blown away. By how fast his first year flew by, we both have been very busy with our jobs to the point we've just been surviving together. Surviving, well, uh, but still surviving. Uh, Whether we have been thriving, surviving, or something in the middle, there isn't a single person that I can imagine sharing my life with other than her. She's the best thing that has ever happened to me, and she has shown me what true love really is. So thank you, Alyssa, for everything that you are. Now, I would have sent in a voice message, but I'd probably start crying. Uh, I can barely hold myself together when things get emotional. If you don't get this message in time from anniversary, that's cool. Just know we love everything you and your team do and represent your faithful listeners. Loyal Space Lizards, Alex and Alyssa. Thank you, Space Lizards. P.S. Get your ass back to Oxnard so we can uh, hate a little bit on some idiot flat earthers together. I think I am heading back there. I think I'm heading back there in the fall. Pretty sure I am. Got to look it up on the, on the tour dates. Congrats, you two, on what sounds like a beautiful little love story. Uh, yeah, that's awesome. Happy to have you two in the cult of the curious. Have a great summer. And thank you, everyone, for the updates. Thanks, time suckers. I needed that. We all did. That's all for today, everybody. Uh, Have a great week. I'll be talking to you again on Friday. For those of you with a stomach strong enough to handle the toy box killer, 
<laughs> I'm telling you, it's not going to be for everybody. Good luck growing a uh, Poncho via mustache that would make Jeff Foxworthy jealous. You keep on sucking. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate. Pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.